Welcome to the Bellwether Podcast. 30 minutes of sunshine lining up the political and cultural shifts on the horizon, one-on-one with subject matter experts. I'm your host, Laura Fink. Today in our inaugural episode, I talked to Candace Katunji, professor of Black Studies at San Diego Mesa College. She's a Cornell grad. She's brilliant. She also happens to have gone to high school with me. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Candace. Thank you. Or should I say Professor Katunji? What either way is fine with me. <laughs> <laughs> Candace just a few weeks after the election in 2016. I was reeling, having just watched an electoral dumpster fire incinerate a brilliant, tested female leader in favor of a pussy-grabbing perp who ran the most nakedly racist campaign since George Wallace. Right now, a historic moment, CNN projects. Donald Trump wins the presidency. Mexico sends its people. They're not sending their best. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. As far as predictions go, I had gotten it wrong many times and in front of the cameras as a television political analyst. Okay, well, I'm, I'm a big believer in math, and so I'm going to go with the math that suggests that there aren't enough angry white men in the world to amass against every group of people that Donald Trump has affected. I drank in the polling information, and I was drunk on the prospect of electing the first female president of the United States. You see, I grew up a working-class white girl, the daughter of two grocery store workers happy to ride in the back of my Republican dad's rusty pickup we called the Blue Bomber, who relished trips to the sales racks on the discount store circuit with my Democratic mom. The way I came up, I thought I was equipped on a gut level to see this coming. And I was wrong. I didn't believe that 53% of white women would vote for Trump after finding out he sexually assaulted women on planes and in clubs and on street corners. Women did turn out and vote for Donald Trump, specifically white women. 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump. How do you explain that number? And I didn't think that 62% of working class white women who grew up like me and nearly half of all white women with a college degree like I now have would also vote for Trump. I wanted to talk to Candace because she is a brilliant expert in antebellum history and a specialist in the contributions of black female abolitionists. She researches and writes about the frequently unheralded impact of black women on our American story. I knew she wouldn't have my blind spots, and I knew she would have a compelling and unique perspective that answered the question, what up white women? Well, that's a big question. (laughs) And I definitely don't have the full answer. Um, And I think that my only lens of what I do see is some of the ways in which white women uh, appears to have today and historically have aligned with white men. Um, And this huge ideology that's in the background called white supremacy that Donald Trump really kind of spoke to uh, that was breeding in a lot of places that I don't think everybody was as aware of as, say, people of color. My perspective I have to put out there is looking at Donald Trump as representing uh, the revival of white supremacy in kind of full-blown form that we haven't seen 
I haven't seen in my lifetime, right? Like I, I think about it, I teach about it, I study it, but this really blatant uh, form is something that we haven't seen on this level. Uh, and I see him calling uh, out some of the fears that people have had specifically in relation to the advancement of people who have been historically marginalized, not just black people, but black people in particular, or even some of the pushback recently of black people like with Black Lives Matter. So that's kind of the lens that I'm seeing him with. And women of color, Black women in particular have historically stood up for human rights and have historically, when kind of positioned with something or someone or institutions, entities that are against others uh, and oppressing kind of large groups, which they usually are a part of or have historically been a part of, they've stood up. And I, that's that piece where white women, where we're not, we're not threatened in the same way that women of color were. So you think the appeal to their sort of white nationalist, you know, make America great again, and then that supplanted what might be an inclination towards seeing Donald Trump as a threat to white women's gender, that that was a that was part of the part of the pie. Well, I think that part of what the way in which our country has always uh, existed is where white men have been in control uh, and then white women have been oppressed under them. But those two kind of interlocking ideologies of, of racism and sexism or how patriarchy is at the center of all that, that hasn't disappeared. And so I do think white women were appalled by some of the things that Donald Trump has said. I do think those who uh, are on the side of pro-choice uh, might have also been felt threatened by the t attacks on reproductive rights, uh, Roe v. Wade and all so on and so forth. But did they really feel threatened in the ways that Mexican-Americans felt threatened or in the ways that Muslims felt threatened or in the ways that uh, African-Americans felt threatened? No. They didn't, their lives were not at risk uh, in that sense. Uh, were they up against sexism? Yes. But white women have always been up against sexism. Like That hasn't changed. Now, with 95% of all black women punching the ticket for Clinton, it begs the question, why the difference? And again, Candace got it right. It, it has everything to do with intersectionality, right? Like, yes, it's an oversimplification to say it wasn't just about economics or it was just all about race and racism. But really what's happening is there's some intersections there. And because, and in, there is, and this is what sometimes is very hard to articulate, the ways in which class has been used uh, and economics has been used as an argument to divide uh, people who have the same class interests, which would be white working class and working poor folks and people of color who are working class and working poor and, and even the underclass, right? Those who are not even working, right? But that's not what's happening. There's a there's also this piece of when people of color start to advance, then there's all this resentment from white working class folks about that advancement as if something about folks advancing from the bottom is a problem when really it's the issue of what's happening from the top. Mm -hmm. The thing that was the most mind boggling for me is how does a man like Donald Trump galvanize Poor white folks. 
Seriously. Right, he's got a gold-plated toilet. That is lit now now and it's hard Classic. because I, I I do study a century ago and you know that's where my expertise is and that's where my mind goes but the the planter elite had to figure out a way to get all of the non-slave owners to figure out why they needed to fight for a civil war that was about slavery even though the majority of whites didn't own slaves like there's a way that race and class have intersected so how did they do that just spell it out spell it out for the the non historically they empowered poor white folks with this idea of whiteness that your whiteness is what puts you above these enslaved people not your class so don't even worry about class that's a whole other issue you're white before that Europeans were Europeans they weren't white, you know, and we know that, especially if you look at how some ethnic groups, it took much longer <laughs> for them to be identified as white, like the Irish or the Italians. Um, but yeah, no, they that's where whiteness comes from, this divide uh, to kind of parcel out your white working class who were formerly indentured servants and black folks. Candace was absolutely correct. Race is a far more reliable predictor of voting patterns than gender, and this is certainly true of white women. Historically, white women have always voted Republican. In fact, in the last 70 years, there have only been two times where a majority of white women have punched the ticket for a Democratic presidential candidate. I shouldn't have been shocked that Trump didn't move the needle on white women, given their history. Were you shocked? I was upset. You know, I, 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 I really did think Hillary was going to win. So, so yes, I was shocked. Um, but there were lots of moments throughout the election as Donald Trump started to really uh, gain some speed where it did seem like this was a possibility and he was tapping into what seemed to be underlying for a long time right this and it, and i think the response to barack obama is part of it right you have this black president and there's a lot of resentment just to what that even means or what that entails or this idea of, okay, everything is better now. And so let's move on and let's get back to when we weren't even thinking about race and we weren't thinking about racism. And But when is that better time? I'm still trying to win, figure out when America was great, you know, seriously, in terms of, are we talking the 80s, the 60s? I know it couldn't have been the 50s, um, at least not for black people, right, before the Voting Rights Act. Um or for white women, really, either, but apparently they didn't feel that way. Well, I think they have, but I think that's a piece of it, right? And I, and I think that there has been kind of this history of white women taking their place in a patriarchal society where they have children and they have homes and they have things and they're happy. This is like the American dream, right? It's not really what people's lives are like, but they're just kind of accepting patriarchy and those who are standing against it are rebelling, you know, in some sense. This is what feminism looks like. Massive crowd of women marching behind me. This is the front line and they're pretty amped. Donald Trump is got to go, hey, hey. So who are the rebels we're talking about? All the single white ladies, baby. Poll after poll shows single women are far more likely to be progressive voters. 
the 2016 evidence is glaring. Hillary Clinton lost married white women by 10 points, and she won single white women by that same margin. Why? Single white women overwhelmingly see their fate as tied to that of all women. Married white women, not so much. And black women, there's virtually no difference in the ideology and voting patterns of single and married black women. Once again, Candace just naturally gets it right. You still have this idea of, you know, the man is the head of the household and, you know, women still take men's names. And I mean, that's just kind of the structure. And so I think that especially for white women who and I'm totally making this up because I don't know data or economics or anything like that. It's all right. You're allowed to have an opinion. I'm assuming that they're, they're, they're more likely to when having unions with white men <laughs> to elevate themselves, you know, in ways that historically black women haven't always been able to do. You know, black women aren't necessarily marrying into uh, CEO type situations. Um, So I think that's a piece of it where there's just kind of this understanding that men are the heads of households and women go along with them. Exactly. White women marry white men who make more money than any other demographic and who are more conservative than any other demographic. And studies show over and over again, when white women marry, they see their husband's interests as their own. But it's not just economic, it's also cultural. Married white women's social circles close in after they get married. They have greater contact with their husbands and kids and far less contact with other women. They also face the twin legacies of men's interests being elevated above women's in marriage, hello, childcare and household duties, and the fact that women are socialized not to stir the pot or cause conflict by expressing dissenting views. Something I noticed on my trail of speaking engagements in 2016. In this election, there were so many women, white women, generally speaking, that would come up to me after these panels. And because I, I focused a lot on the gender dynamics of women in power and that lens that we were, that you inevitably have to see this through. The gender gap isn't just there because of Trump, it's there because we have the first viable woman president running with all of the ideas and explanations around that. But, but it fascinated me because there was this profile of a woman that would come up and talk to me, because I very objectively talk about sort of data and tropes and women running for office. And, and the women would come up to me and they would say, in the face of my remarks, would say, you know, one, 90% of them, the, the women that would come up to me would be characterized themselves as independent. So they would say, well, I have a conservative husband. I'm independent. I think on my own. But then anecdotally, what they would tell me, um, and again, you know, these are just stories, but it was really interesting to me that so many women saw themselves as independent but their husbands were really dominant in terms of how much they talked about politics, that they mm. watched the news channels, that they talked about the issues every day, whereas the women weren't necessarily driving that conversation. So here they were, saw themselves as independent of their husbands, and yet were hearing you know, the conservative point of view all day long. Okay, so a few things here. One. These were married, college-educated white women. Two, they had moved away from the Republican Party and identified as independent or apolitical. Three, 
They shared exactly the same profile as the women who swung away from Trump and voted for Dems in 2018. These women were the canaries in the coal mine. The year of the woman. The year of the woman. The year of the woman. They ran and won in unprecedented numbers, adding over 30 seats in the House. The 116th Congress includes more than 100 women. I now call the House to order. But let's get back to black women for a second. Black women turning out to vote prevented a pedophile from being elected to the U.S. Senate and successfully elected Stacey Abrams, the first black woman governor in the history of the U.S. Well, almost, if it weren't for the voter suppression perpetrated by her Republican opponent. Under the watch of the now former Secretary of State, democracy failed Georgia. Black women have shown up and showed out. Black people in particular have political power here. We were able to flip Alabama which totally, totally dispelled uh, the notions and the myths that, that our vote doesn't really matter, it doesn't count. We also know that black women throughout history have been at the center of social justice movements. Activism is in black women's historic DNA. Black women were at the foundation of the anti-slavery movement. Black women were at the foundation of the feminist movement. Uh, they get written out of these uh, histories quite often because they weren't necessarily documenting what they were doing, but they were there. They were the ones really championing uh, some of these early issues of human rights. They were some of the first to really think about children's rights uh, as well. So uh, that's something that I look at, and it's so far back, but it's still relevant in how how black women have positioned themselves uh, in favor of human rights, even beyond civil rights. And even if you look at that period uh, in and of itself, you see black women who are uh, seemingly in the background, but doing the, the bulk of the work, uh, not always being recognized, uh, sometimes having to deal with uh, the lesser of two evils, even in how they negotiate uh, what they stand for. Um, but they're standing up for what's right. White women, if we look at them historically, have been siding with the kind of ultimate oppressor uh, in the sense of uh, where were they in standing against slavery? Where were they in standing against, standing up for this idea of a multiracial, all-inclusive feminist movement? You know, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton was vehemently opposed to the idea of black men voting because she didn't believe that black men should have the right to vote over white women. Susan B. Anthony was better, but she also was someone who said that in favor of garnering Southern women, white women's support, she disinvited Frederick Douglass to a meeting, even wow. though he had been the biggest supporter of women's rights of his time in terms of men. Frederick Douglass was, in fact, the only uh, African-American who was in attendance at the first women's rights convention in Seneca Falls in 1848. Who wasn't there, though, were black women. Why? Because they weren't invited. That's what I mean by, like, there's been a difference in what white women have historically kind of stood up for and what black women have historically stood up for. Because when black women were called, they did uh, push forward, you know, and ch start challenging and say, well, how do we fit into this movement? But what's all this here talking about? That man over there says that women need to be helped into carriages, lifted over ditches, 
and to have the best place everywhere. Huh. Nobody ever helps me into carriages, or over mud puddles, or gives me any best place. And ain't I a woman? You know, I love having Candace's historic perspective because it is so relevant in 2018, 2019, as we look back. And she had some prescient things to say as well. Um, first, she talked about, the, about white supremacy, and that has come to fruition. On the streets of Charlottesville today, the hate boiling over white supremacists and countered protesters fighting with fists and clubs. Where white supremacists across the country are re-energized after Charlottesville. In all the years that we've been tracking, we've never seen this many of these groups everywhere. We've never seen their ideas penetrating the mainstream in the way that they are. She's been talking about patriarchy throughout this podcast, and we see the evidence of that and the confrontation around that and the Me Too movement. And remember, this was prior to all of that. The massive response to hashtag MeToo demonstrated what many women already know. Americans are sexually assaulted every 98 seconds. The hashtag being used more than 19 million times. The conversation about a typically taboo topic sweeping the nation, ultimately uprooting many in high-powered positions. So I wanted to turn to her and some of her comments that about patriarchy that seem particularly relevant and particularly prescient today. You've mentioned patriarchy a couple of times, um, which is a loaded word, especially, I think, for men. Oh, the patriarchy, and I'm a bad guy. Um, but, but tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that, and, and then what, you know, what does it mean to internalize that, to normalize that? I don't mean they're bad, but they do have the power, and that's something that we can't be afraid to point out. We can't be afraid to point out privilege in society and power and positioning in society. Internalizing patriarchy, internalizing sexism is that idea of uh, it's just kind of the standard that boys will be boys. The fact that locker room banter could even come off of people's, like, brains as a possible excuse for what Trump uh, was recorded to have said. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. That is internalizing lots of things. Rape culture is one of them, but just patriarchy in general. This idea, well, you know, that's part of what men do. And uh, that, I think, is a big piece of how you have those who are leaning more conservative to uh, follow uh, along with uh, Trump and to think that he's great and to wear uh, hats that say, you know, grab me by the, you know, whatever. That's the piece where you have, I mean... Thinking back to how women have been told to be pretty, women have been told to, you know, stand up straight, that hasn't disappeared, you know, just because we've had movements against it or just because Hillary Clinton was there and there was her following of the pantsuit nation, or is that what they're called? Uh, That didn't change the fact that, you know, for generations upon generations, women have been subscribing to patriarchy, especially white women. Black women haven't 
benefited as much from it. Why? Because black men haven't historically benefited from uh, positions of power in the way white men have. Oh, so they can't they can't have power by proxy. So yeah. you're saying white women can have power by proxy because they they marry the white dude and then all of a sudden they get some of the benefits. It's trickle down patriarchy. Yeah. Is what you're saying. There's the trickle down patriarchy and then there's the just this is how our society is normalization that happens with all of the isms, right? I see so many young women reveling in this victimhood mentality and letting it define everything that they do. We are not living in a rape culture. To say we live in a rape culture is quite frankly ridiculous. You've had some experiences too, I think, that we've talked about with women coming up to you that have either a similar situation but or just from all stripes that are looking to you for answers, for explanations. I kind of like what I'm doing here. Well, I do find that white women often come to me looking for the answers <laughs> to most things, especially when it has to do with race and racism, which is a whole other conversation about the intellectual labor behind kind of unpacking some of these things that often falls on on black women or women of color in, in my field or what we do. In fact, we talk about that a lot in our circle. Hats off to you for teaching, for doing what you do, for listening to all my white girl questions today. <laughs> and well, <laughs> no, I I appreciate it. And um, it's Crawford and where we grew up definitely cemented the direction that I took in life. And it was through trying to figure out some of these very kind of broader questions uh, personally for myself that led me into the field, right? And it's been it's been a, a blessing, but, you know, some of the things I've learned have been difficult, right, to kind of really understand the history of of oppression. It's, it's a big thing. So how, how do you stay motivated to continue to fight? Because I think that's another thing that people are, are questioning. So you, as, from, as you look at your worldview and what you seek to change, well, I think that, well, I have to say what I do is very, very small. All I have to do is go into little classrooms and share a little bit of knowledge with students. I'm I'm motivated by people who are on the ground doing the work. Um, I'm motivated by activists. I'm motivated by people who I've maybe studied with who are on the ground working. I'm motivated by this whole massive group of young folks who have started a whole movement. Um, and I'm motivated by what knowledge does uh, and how education can be empowering. Education is is actually a piece of my dissertation in terms of how I look at black women abolitionists. But once you know, you can move with that. Like once you have some information and you kind of understand how the world works, you can move with that. Uh, and so it's not just hopeless. Um, it's only uh, ignorances can sometimes be comfortable. Um, but uh, in order to really want change. And if you go to a school like Crawford, you're going to want change. You know, I mean, it was obvious to me. It was obvious in sixth grade that things weren't there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, That was after leaving Oak Park uh, Elementary School, which was kind of the opposite of junior high and high school. But yeah, I think that just wanting something different and understanding the power of, of education is what motivates me. 
So I hope we've provided some insight and answer to the question, what up white women? But I wanted to now in 2018, talk about why we should care and where we were at. Now, we know that in 2016, 55% of white women voted for Republican congressional candidates. And that trend line actually has moved in a more democratic direction. In 2018, it was evenly split. 50% of white women voted for Republican candidates and 50% of white women voted for Democratic candidates. So the trend line is moving in a blue direction. But why should we care? Well, you know, especially in the face of the rising American electorate, uh, people of color, demographically being on the rise and being more reliably progressive and more reliably democratic uh, than, than white voters generally, the question, it's legitimate to ask, why should we care so much about white women? And, and I would say, I, I would consider that a little bit of a false choice. We absolutely have to invest in expanding our outreach to communities of color and to communities um, that are more democratic and, and do voter engagement, battle voter suppression, and ensure that uh, voters of color have opportunities to vote and are encouraged to vote and we communicate with them. That said, White women remain one of the largest blocks, if not the largest block, of persuadable voters in this country. They are the new battleground, the new Ohio, the new Florida, uh, in a sense. And, and when you look at it, it's also structural. 40 years from now, we know that whites will no longer be a majority in this country nationwide. However, in 28 states, white people still will be. And with the Electoral College and the United States Senate, without either of those things changing, we know that we're going to continue to have to win over white voters. And the pockets of white women that we've talked about seem to be the most persuadable groups uh, among white voters. And so that's why I think we have to care. And, and of course, I also think, you know, white people and white women in particular have a unique opportunity and a unique responsibility to influence those voters. And we see, you know, groups in Texas organizing and we see them in battleground states across the country having influence uh, because we talked a little bit about white women's, especially married white women's circles being generally confined to family and not much beyond that. But when white women and married white women are exposed, they're persuadable. And if you're a white woman and you're listening to this podcast, then you can have influence in that. I think uh, the colloquial way of saying it is come and get your girl. So we've got some uh, coming and getting to do. And a huge thank you to Candice Katuji for being the first guest on the Bellwether podcast and for just being a general badass. Thank you for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me. Someone like Trump can get, arre uh, get arrested, get uh, elected. We, well, he might <laughs> get arrested. I mean, I, it, it could happen. It could happen. We don't know.